I must say this episode is really close to my heart. Today we have Chil Karnik. She lived on the 21st floor of the Grenfell Tower from 2011 to 2014. Seven of her former neighbors died in the Grenfell fire in 2017. She works with JMJ Associates to prevent catastrophic events from taking place in high hazard buildings. Today we'll hear the story of Grenfell through our eyes. Welcome to Anshizum, Jill. How are you doing? I'm good. Hi. <laughs> It's great to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you for taking out the time. Jill, tell us a bit about yourself. What do you do and a bit about your role? Great. So, um professionally I work in high hazard industries, so, you know, oil and gas, mining, chemicals, um construction. and i partner organizations specifically to build the kind of leadership capabilities and culture needed to prevent accidents and specifically i have an interest in preventing what are called low probability high consequence events so cat- catastrophic events that's quite interesting you know uh, yeah <laughs> it's not a <laughs> usual job <laughs> no yeah exactly yeah. you know you hear about people like what do you do <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So, Jill, as you have mentioned before, you were a resident at the Grenfell Tower from 2011 to 2014. And how was your experience living at Grenfell? How is the community there? I loved it. So, um it's uh, so I just moved back to London with my husband and we've always um lived in this area of London when we've been in the country, so North Kensington. and we um didn't have enough deposit to buy so we wanted to rent something for a couple of years and i i, I don't know how much you know about london rents but they're astronomical and i was so sick of, lo- of looking at um horrible little basement flats and then i'd never thought of living in a high rise building but saw this particular apartment in grenfell on the 21st floor and went and looked at it and absolutely it's one of the best apartments i've ever lived in it was beautiful the views from grenfell are still i mean they're just magical the dual aspect windows wonderful community alfall was very special um lots of kids playing in the lobbies it's a wonderful place to live jill talk us through your experiences of the night of the fire where were you and how did you react um so i as i said i live in trelick which actually i look my view is of grenfell so when we lived in grenfell i could see trelick and we used to dream of buying a flat there because it's a famous if people like modernist architecture it's a famous modernist architecture building and i um couldn't sleep it was beautiful beautiful day i remember the evening and going and we had dinner on goldborn road which is one of my favorite roads in london and and then i couldn't sleep it was hot um i mean remember it was hot it was ramadan part of the things as people's windows were open and grateful but i couldn't sleep and i was lying next door in the living room and there was a lot of helicopters and sirens but that's not so abnormal for london you know yeah. so i was like oh drugs and gangs and you know, annoyed and then i got up and i walked into the bedroom and when i walked into the bedroom i could see you know there was just the whole building on fire i'll never forget that it's just 
walking in and seeing that. You know, Jill, I can understand how helpless we feel and that we can't do anything about the situation because I have had a certain experience with the cube fire in Bolton. How did you manage to hold yourself together and how did you think that you can help in that situation? Yeah, my husband, we actually didn't go down. He said to me, there'll be more we can do in the morning. So, um, you know, he went earlier than me. I had something I had to do, but we went down in the morning. But yeah, you know, I mean, I know people that were there that night and tried to get in the building and get people out and people that just watched. It's awful. It's awful. Do you know, and and this is the richest borough in one of the richest countries in the world. Exactly, you know, Kenningston Council. Never ever would have imagined. Yeah. 72 people died. 72 families were affected. The whole country was in shock. Jill, what was your motivation to, you know, spread awareness about these high hazard buildings? And what, what has been your motivation to run your blog and talk about Grenfell publicly? Because I know it's not easy. Well, um, so because of my professional experience, uh, unfortunately, I know also that catastrophic events can lead to change. So you see that often, and particularly in oil and gas. And I've I've been around after some big um, catastrophic events and seen how it's led to change, particularly in the culture and the way people think and the way people behave in the way people lead. So initially, actually, however devastating it was, I was quite hopeful of change. So I was like, do, do you know how, it, it's almost like to honor the people that died and the people that are impacted by those deaths. It's, it's really change for me is, is the way to, to honor that, if that makes sense. Um, and I think really I started campaigning because I didn't see the change. So I, I knew that I wanted to see change. And then I started doing, you know, speaking to people who I, I, I thought would be interested and discovering closed doors. And, and then um, I was very lucky. I was mentored by a um, former NASA astronaut. So I knew him from my work. Um, his name's um, Captain Jim Weatherby, and he had worked in NASA with the Challenger and um, uh, Columbia disasters. And then also he'd been around the oil and gas industry with two of the biggest disasters there, the Texas City and Macondo. And he supported me a lot and mentored me in the days after or the months after. And one of the things he said to me was the doors of the people that should listen to you won't be open stop knocking on them um, is go where there's open doors um, and that that still sticks with me as really good advice because it was accurate the people that I thought would be interested in engaging in inquiries around real learning whether it be from government or from industry weren't interested in an authentic conversation um, so I just started, I started my blog because I was like, okay, I want to get my thinking out there. If for nobody else, at least I get my own thinking down. Um, and then, do you know, I 
there's there's a phenomenal community of people you know particularly now with the cladding scandal and everything like that there's just a big community abjil as you spoke about the warning signs there were warning signs that the building wasn't safe and uh, you know people's life was potentially at risk who should we hold accountable for this is it the government is it the company who are we supposed to hold accountable as people because lives have been lost well um possibly but i i think there's a probably a, a more kind of existential conversation that needs to happen because laws will only they'll they'll stop a specific thing they won't alter how people think and behave in other domains so i have been i mean i i wasn't surprised by some of the stuff that came out in the inquiry but i have been appalled at the the kind of breadth of um bad practice um at a minimum i would call it bad practice whether it's criminal or not we'll discover over time but i think there's something for me that really organizations need to consider what their role in society is so if you consider your role as maximizing profit then you'll justify the kinds of behaviors that we see by you know iconic kingspan celotics because you can game the system all of those practices that we seem to have seen across the board but if you're if you consider your role as an organization or a company to make a difference um then you'd make different decisions so safety would become more of a value and you wouldn't take decisions that put people at risk in that way so for me um i i would rather we were having those existential conversations versus rather let's just focus on rules and complying to rules because that's not going to prevent another catastrophe it might end up having safer materials put on buildings but something else bad will just happen in in some other domain so that's really what i'm interested in because i remember you speaking in one of your blogs about a moral high ground and where do we draw the line between profit and the lives of people also these big businessmen have you know these big industries have the power to influence governments and people well so- well frankly almost if if you look at the the nature of the world and you you can look at it through the pandemic there's a lot of examples of it is really big business is more stable than government so arguably from a, a a change perspective and if you look at the what's called industry 4.0 i don't know if that means anything to you but um it's like the late we're in the midst of the next industrial revolution which is all about complexity um and actually businesses are more stable than governments so have the ability to change much more than i think government has i've to be honest given up on government for change chill tell us through your experience did you feel that there were warning signs were there fire alarms fire exits doors not working properly and why was it not changed if it was there why was it not changed and fixed 
Well, so I talk first about my own experience and then what we know that's come out from evidence. So in my own experience, I didn't experience the building as unsafe, um, but that's not to say it was safe. I just didn't think about it. Um, I did experience a very poor relationship with the um, tenant management organization, the TMO. I went to one meeting about the refurbishment just before we moved out which was terrible um and it is uh, yeah the, the, definitely that i saw that and that is a warning sign from um a major accident is when you have those bad relationships between management and the front line in this case re residents but then we do know i mean there's the um the blog by um eddie and i can't remember the other woman's name claire i think that predicted a catastrophic fire. And then I think in evidence yesterday in the opening statements, there was another leaseholder that sent a letter saying a fire, there will be a catastrophic fire because of the um, weak escape routes and poor ventilation. And we know that, again, I think it was Eddie had raised issues around the doors. So yes, I wouldn't, they were very strong warning signs that all was not well very strong, but just weren't heated. You know, Jill, in one of the articles you shared, there was a victim who told that the fire exit doors were still not working on the night of fire, and it cost two lives. Jill, what was your reaction when you heard about the Cube fire in Bolton? Despite two years of lobbying and your activism, here we are again. Here there are 200 odd students stuck in a building and what was your reaction? The first thought is, is everybody out, um, of course, and thank goodness in, in, in all of the big fires since Grenfell people have got out. But my view is that's largely because the public's relationship to fires has changed. So, you know, you, you have people knocking. I mean, even here we have We've, we have had a couple of fires since Grenfell and we're lucky because we know that complementation works and we're a great listed building so they're limited in terms of the amount of refurbishment they can do but you know people look after their neighbours differently and you hear people from the streets telling people to get out of their fires so I think there's been I think Grenfell might not have changed government and industry in the way that I'd like to see but I think they have created something in, in, in citizens. I mean, I'm, I'm interested in your experience of Bolton. I mean, what's that like and how's that impacted you and students? Well, the first and foremost was the students and thinking about them stuck in a building and all the things that happen afterwards, you know, the effect on their mental health. And when I was there on the site, the only thing that I was thinking and I was praying that every student is safe and accounted for. That that was the only only thing that came to my mind. And even till today, I cannot sum it up in words how I feel about the cube fire, if that makes sense, you know, because I still am not over the fact of what happened and especially the students who were there. So yeah, one day I'll definitely find words to sum it up, but it is shameful and uh, we need to hold people accountable for it. 
that's what I feel. Yeah, I think there's, you know, for me, one of the big impacts has been a kind of like my loss of faith in government or the powers that be to change, do you know? I mean, I've never been pol political in, in a sense. I've always voted because I'm South African and a woman. So <laughs> to not vote isn't really an option for me. But I've never never really been interested in, in politics. And, and I wonder often around how it's impacted younger people in terms of, I mean, there's, there's you know, there's Greenfall, there's Bolton, there's, you know, COVID is in terms of our faith in those in power to take care of us in some way. For, for me, that, that was probably one of the biggest impacts was realizing that they wouldn't necessarily do the right thing, even in this country. You know, I do understand you, where you're coming from, but we'll, we're still not able to, you know, find who should we hold accountable for this because people's life is at risk. So I, I think there's a, a number of things. So firstly, I, I think what stops us from learning is we have an obsession with who to blame. Now, you, you didn't use the language of blame, you used the language of accountability. But I, I think we often focus too much on whose fault it is um, without understanding the complexity that people are operating in, which is why I don't make it party political. So. I'm not sure that any other political party would have responded much differently, although they would argue differently. There's a political system we're up against, which frankly is pretty much stagnant. It just stays the same. It's resistant to change. Um, so if you look at major accident after major accident after major accident, the same issues get raised around breakdowns in communication, around not listening to warning signals, in the response issues between um, communication between the different fire, uh, sorry, emergency services, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. they're all the same issues that come out after every event. But yet we don't learn. So, you know, for me, before before we can answer the question, what are the specific lessons from Grenfell or from Bolton or from COVID, we first have to have a conversation about why don't we learn um and in fact I, I have just finished writing a book it's going to be published um at the end of may which is about that it's catastrophe and systemic change which explores this question why we don't learn because i that was really one of my insights um probably a couple of years after the fire when when i understood the amount of failed opportunities to learn, I realized the question I had to ask was different, which is why don't we learn from these events? But I also don't think that's, you know, it's easy to go that's this particular politician's fault or that particular politician's fault. I'm not a fan of, of many of Blame any you. politicians, but I don't think anybody, you know, there's so much of the same behavior happening. It's, it's a systemic issue rather than an individual issue. So I don't think I answered your question in terms of um, how we move forward. And how we can prevent it, you know? Yeah, like... so, so I would say, I, I think there's specific 
what I call piecemeal as opposed to systemic. So piecemeal issues around Grenfell, which it, it's just ludicrous in my view that we don't know nearly four years after the fire, we don't know how many buildings in the country have dangerous um, facades or are dangerous because it's not just the cladding, it's the interaction of the elements. So it's, you know, the cladding, the insulation, the fire breaks, the fire doors, the escape routes, the ventilation, there's, you know, it's, it's a combination of a whole host of factors. But that four years after Greenfield, we should have done a risk assessment, holistic risk assessment of, uh, I would have thought by now of all, all buildings at least over 11, never mind 18 meters. And then identified the ones that are holistically the most in danger and prioritized fixing those. Whereas what we've done is focus only on cladding. So we're focusing on removing the hazard, which is one hazard, which is the cladding versus taking a holistic risk-based approach and prioritizing that. That kind of shocks me a little bit. In four years, we don't even know the scale of the problem. Um, so what we should do is figure out the scale of the problem and then fix it. Um, but I think linked to that is who's going to pay for it. So, you know, right now, leaseholders are having to foot at least some of the bills, maybe not for cladding and over 18 meters in certain circumstances. But still there's fire doors, fire lifts, all of those costs that people are having to pay for, which is massively unfair. So that the first thing I would do is, is make buildings, make homes safe. And it's shocking for me that we don't seem to be doing that in any um, priority, urgency, with any, with any sense of urgency. That's hard to fathom. I think that the, the way where I've gotten to is almost to honor the people that died is I have to do whatever I can do. And, and I think I, I am left with hope in terms of us, you know, in terms of citizens like you and me, we'd never have met. And we're sitting having this kind of pretty existential conversation. I'm in tears in front of you. And it's in these connections between people and um you know if you look at you know the grainful community organizations like grainful united that people caught up in the cladding scandal you know the frontline staff that have been impacted by covid and i think that if 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 we each in whatever way we can stood for change something would shift um and that for me is is where hope lives is is in us not in waiting for politicians or, or waiting for big business because frankly we do have power in terms of both voting and where we spend money and part of me is i think i'm a better citizen i think i'm i'm more mindful about what i do and what i say and who i support and what questions i ask